Bibles, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. This morning, I want to continue the message we started last Sunday about being imitators of God and walking in His love. As I pointed out last week, Ephesians chapter 5 begins one of the most begins with one of the most startling admonitions in all of the New Testament. Paul says here in the first verse, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. William Barclay calls this the highest standard in the world. Alexander McLaren calls it the sum of all Christian duty. To Martin Lloyd-Jones, it was Paul's supreme argument, the highest level of all in doctrine and in practice, the ultimate ideal, he said. Well, how is it possible for finite human beings to imitate one who is so infinitely above us, to imitate the sovereign God of the universe. Paul exhorts believers to imitate God as beloved children. And in the context of this chapter, that means to walk in love. So practically, what the apostle is saying is we should not fall into a life of sin, but rather we are to live a life of love. And here's the takeaway. Same as it was last Sunday. Imitate God as Jesus did and walk in love. That's what Paul is saying in this chapter. We're to imitate God as Jesus himself did. And how did Jesus imitate God? By walking in love. Paul is contrasting the perfect love of God um, evidenced in Christ with the world's perverted love. Now we looked at God's perfect love last week and we saw in the last verse of chapter 4 verse 32 through the second verse of chapter 5 that God's love or God's perfect love is characterized in at least three ways. It's forgiving, it's unconditional, and it's self-sacrificing. Today, I want to look at what Paul says about the perverted love of the world in contrast to the love of God. So look with me in the second place at the punishment for perverted love, which is judgment. When I was growing up in the 1960s, everyone talked about the new morality. By the 1990s, Society had proclaimed that moral absolutes had been replaced by moral relativism. You have your morality, I have mine, and no one should ever judge or criticize another person's moral or immoral choices. In keeping with the non-judgmental mood of the times, the word promiscuous was replaced by the non-judgmental phrase, sexually active. 
And the slogan of the time became, if it feels good, you are free to do it. Today, in 2018, living together is considered normal. Promiscuous sex is a regular topic in our music, on TV sitcoms, and in the movies. Sex scandals regularly rock our political institutions and even our churches and Christian ministries. Our media and our society is drenched in illicit sex. Rarely do we see sexual issues addressed in our culture from the viewpoint that sex is God's gift to be practiced only in marriage. As we look at society today and we consider its anything-goes sexual attitude, we are tempted to think we have reached unprecedented depths of cultural decay. But I want you to understand something this morning. The present state of our society is very similar to the conditions found in the first century A.D. when Paul was writing his letters. For example, um, turn over, hold your place here in Ephesians chapter 5. Turn over to Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, <clears throat> Paul says these words, beginning in verse 18. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now skip down to verse 24. It says, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Friend, after 2,000 years, these conditions are as rampant today as they ever were. Inspired by the Apostle Paul, inspired by God, the Apostle Paul has written a timeless document of truth 
both in Romans and in Ephesians that touches our own hearts and lives to the same degree that it did his original audience. Now here in Ephesians chapter 5, in verses 3 through 7, we have Paul's treatment of this issue of perverted love. And Paul makes two points primarily. First, we note the practice of perverted love in verses 3 and 4. You know, whatever God establishes, whatever God uh, uh, deems right, Satan always will counterfeit. Where God establishes true love, Satan produces counterfeit love. In contrast to the godly, unselfish, forgiving love, which we looked at last Sunday morning in verses 1 and 2, um, the world's love is lustful. It's self-indulgent. It loves because the object of love is attractive or enjoyable or pleasant or satisfying or appreciative and produces desired feelings or it's likely to repay in some way. The world claims that they want love and, the, and romantic love especially, but what they have done is they've taken love and they have defined it according to the world's way of understanding love. And you see this in the songs and the movies, the novels, um, uh, how the, this uh, uh, lustful kind of love is exploited as if it were genuine love. And this misguided quest for that kind of love leads to perverted love because it's selfish and it's destructive, a deceptive counterfeit to the love of God. It's always conditional. It's always self-centered. It's not concerned about commitment, only satisfaction. It's not concerned about giving, only getting. Its purpose is to use or to exploit rather than to serve or to help or to benefit the one loved. It generally lasts until the one loved uh, no longer satisfies or the person decides they've had enough and they go chasing after love somewhere else. Well, Paul describes the world's imitation love here in these two verses, in verses 3 and 4. Look what he says here. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. Now here we see two ways perverted love is practiced. First, it has to do with immoral conduct. Paul begins in verse 3, pointing out sexual sins. He uses the term there, sexual immorality. And that is a general term for all sexual sin, including premarital sex, adultery, 
homosexuality, incest, pornography, on and on the list goes. These actions are sinful and they go against God and godly love. And the Bible says that as a Christian, you and I should not practice it. The reality is we live in a day when sex of just about any kind is considered okay. We're told that all sex is beautiful, that it's natural. We're told that having sex whenever, wherever, and with whomever we please is simply the way we were made. And we should do so without shame or apology. And this idea that sex, all sex, any sex, is natural and beautiful is a lie of Satan. Satan would tell you that since the sex drive is a natural urge, it should be indulged whenever or wherever and with whomever it arises. Now, it's true the sex drive is a natural urge, but it requires regulation and restraint. And God's intended regulation is marriage. Any other expression of sex is a violation of Christian morality and of our basic humanity as well. So the first thing Paul points out is sexual immorality. Secondly, he refers to moral impurity. The word impurity here refers to anything that is unclean or filthy. It basically, basically means not having any kind of moral standards. It refers to immoral thoughts or passions, ideas, fantasies, or every form of sexual corruption. Now, interestingly, for the first 180 years of our nation's history, it seemed like we had a moral standard. That moral standard was the Ten Commandments. But it seems in the last 30 to 40 years, our nation is trying to live without any kind of moral standard. And it is leading us to disaster, morally, emotionally, and relationally. Friend, Paul says that sexual immorality and moral impurity are the practices of the world, not of the Christian. But next we find the word covetousness. Now that word actually means greed. In this context, it refers to an uncontrolled appetite. It means to covet someone else's body. In other words, to lust. The 10th commandment says, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. It is an insatiable desire for more and more sex. Love says, give. Lust says, give me. Every form of sexual expression is a sin um, uh, that Paul is pointing out here. It's an expression of the self-will. It's an expression of self-centeredness. It's an expression of self-gratification. It is by nature contrary to love, which is self-giving. So immorality and moral, sexual immorality and moral impurity are forms, you might say, of covetousness in the realm of sexual sin. 
They are manifestations of lust and express an insatiable desire for more. In other words, Paul is saying, be careful about sexual sins, moral impurity and lust. And lust includes the first two. Because the person who is basically lustful rather than loving, they're not concerned about anything except gratifying their sexual appetite, and they have no regard for what God's moral standard is. And as a result of this kind of practice, spouses are forsaken, children are neglected, Homes are destroyed, friends are disregarded in order to satisfy the unfulfilled desire to have the one who is lusted after and all in the name of love. Paul says these sins, look at this, these sins, sexual immorality, all impurity, all covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Friend, they cannot in any way be justified and they should not in any way be tolerated. And isn't it something that a good number of Christians today in the church justify these kinds of sins, not only in their own life or in other people's lives, but in their own life as well. Paul says these sins shouldn't even be mentioned among the people of God. That's how offensive they are to a holy God. Well, Paul next addresses a second way perverted love is practiced. Not only do we see it in immoral conduct, but also in inappropriate or indecent conversation. Look what he says in verse 4. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. You see, if a believer is to follow and imitate God, he has to be pure not only in his conduct, but in his conversation as well. He has to keep his mouth clean. Paul points out three ways our speech could be considered indecent. First, he addresses profane language. Look in verse 4, he uses the word filthiness. Now, that refers to that which is obscene, indecent, shameful, disgraceful, foul, or profane. It speaks of indecency in the way one speaks. Profanity, have you noticed profanity has become common today? Words we would never have heard except on the streets or in an R-rated movie or on cable television years ago are now spoken freely on network television and in certain gatherings. I know some of you are exposed to this kind of language on a daily basis. I'm blessed to work on a church staff. You don't hear this kind of language around the church, but many of you hear it every day. I just want to take, how many of you at your work are inundated with profanity on a daily basis. Just raise your hand. You hear profanity of some kind on a daily basis. Look at this. It's, it's everywhere today. It's common. Can I make a suggestion to you? 
if that's, if that's where you find yourself, I have a suggestion that might help. I suggest you make a sign and put it on your desk or put it in your workstation, somewhere in your workstation or on your uh, book bag if you're a student and just simply say something like, thank you for not cursing or please don't curse my God. And see what happens. See if people won't begin to respect who you are because of your stand against that kind of language. Friend, you and I as Christians ought to make it clear that obscenity, foul language, profanity, cursing, whatever you want to call it, are offensive to us. And if we need to, we should clean up our own mouths if we're prone to use that kind of language ourselves. That's the first thing Paul refers to as far as indecent talk. The second thing is foolish talk. Now, that means empty words or careless words. It's the word from which we get our word moron. The, the Greek word there is the word from which we get our English word moron. Paul's referring to stupid or silly talk, careless and senseless chatter. It's talk that uh, fritters away and wastes time. It, the, it's talk that uh, absolutely has no purpose to anything. It's just shooting the breeze um, uh, or talking just to be talking. You know anybody like that? Who would just like to hear themselves talk and most of what they talk about is just chatter? This kind of talk often comes from someone who is drunk and they slur their words while talking incessant nonsense. Uh, that's what he's talking about. Um, it has no point except to give an air of indecency. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 36, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account of every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Now notice, he didn't say every word. He said every careless word you speak. Next, Paul includes dirty jokes. He uses the term crude joking. That refers to off-colored jokes, suggestive humor, or crude joking. It carries the idea of turning something that is said or something that's done, no matter how innocent, into something obscene or sexual. It's the talk of a person who uses every word or circumstance to display his perverted mind. Friend, in light of such clear teaching of God's word, it strains that so many Christians not only discuss, but laugh and joke with impunity about almost every form of sexual intimacy and perversion. But God's standard is clear. He says, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. What he says is, are not fitting. 
instead of indecent talk. Look at this. Look in the latter part of verse 4. The believer's mouth should be full of thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Now, that's an expression of unselfishness. That's an expression of love. That's the language of love. The unselfish or loving person focuses on the needs of others, not himself or herself. You see, sexual sin, moral impurity, lust, filthy language, foolish talk, dirty joking are all self-centered. We sin in these ways when we seek to gratify our own selfish desires. But thanksgiving is the attitude that says, God, thank you for your love. Because of your love, I have everything I need to make my life complete and fulfilled. I don't need anything else. I don't need to use anyone. I don't need to use anything to gain anything for myself because everything I need, everything I could ever hope for, everything I could ever want, I found, I have found in your love for me. And I want to show my gratitude by loving others in the same way that you love me. Can you imagine what would happen, the change in the workspace, in the classroom, in the car, if we began to think about God's love and satisfying the needs of those around us rather than our own? Rejecting these sins is important for the one who professes to believe in Jesus Christ. Because look what he says in verse 4. These sins must not even be named among you. Immoral conduct, indecent conversation are to be the farthest thing from a believer who follows Christ and imitates God. God has nothing to do with this kind of indecent behavior. Friend, how can you keep from becoming sexually and morally impure? How can we guard our conduct? How can we watch what we say? Well, we can find new friends. We can break it off with that boyfriend or girlfriend. We can put the book down. We can switch channels on the television. We can spend less time on the internet. We can walk away when someone is telling a dirty joke. We can politely ask the person using profanity to watch their language. Whatever you must do, you must do. It's too costly not to change. Because I bring you to the second point of this punishment for perverted love, and that's the price of perverted love. Don't miss what Paul says here in verses 5, 6, and 7. He says, for you may be sure of this. You ought to underline those words. You may be sure of this. Everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Now let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. 
Therefore, do not become partners with them. Paul says, no person whose life is characterized by sexual sin, moral impurity, lust, profanity, foolish talk, dirty joking, can be a part of the kingdom of Christ and of God. This is so serious, Paul says it twice. Turn over to Galatians chapter 5. I want you to look in Galatians chapter 5 and look in verse, beginning in verse 16. Paul, Paul is so concerned about this type of behavior that he's repeating himself. He's already spoken about this in his letter to the church at Galatia. He says, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Galatians chapter 5, beginning verse 16. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing these things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, and here they are. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. And then he lists others, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And then he says this, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And let me be clear. Yes, a Christian can commit sexual sins. The biblical record is all too clear on this. For example, all you have to do is look in the account of King David. After years of faithful service, after following the Lord as, as a faithful believer, a man described by God as a man after his own heart, David himself fell into the sin of adultery and took another man's wife. But the point Paul makes here in Ephesians chapter 5 is that no professing Christian can do this repeatedly, defiantly, or shamelessly and call themselves a believer in Jesus Christ. What Paul is saying to us is, is that the true Christian, if he or she does fall into sexual sin, they will be ashamed, they will feel a sense of guilt, and they will hate that sin so much that they will confess it and they will seek to repent of it, not continue to engage in it. And the truth is, there are a lot of people sitting in church every Sunday who for years, and even at this moment, are practicing sexual immorality. And you know it. You're deceiving yourself into thinking it is all right. But Paul says it's not. If you and I can practice sexual sin continually, 
We need to either repent of that sin, confess it, and turn back to God, or we need to be born again, as the Bible says. There is no middle ground. Paul says, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you cannot practice these sins. This is the thinking of the world. This is the world's understanding of love. But God's love is totally different. God's love is forgiving. God's love is unconditional. God's love is self-sacrificing. God's love is about giving. The world's love is about getting. My question this morning is, which kind of love best characterizes our own life? Because it's important as to which one controls our lives. Paul says, you cannot say you're a believer and love like the world. And if we continue to love like the world, Paul says, we have no part in the kingdom of Christ and of God. So next time somebody says to you, it doesn't really matter how one lives their life. That's their choice. That's their decision. You stand up and in a kind and thoughtful and concerned way remind them that as a believer it makes all the difference in the world it's the difference between heaven and hell that's how important it is and I would say today parents you and I have a huge responsibility grandparents we have a huge responsibility to remind our children that just because the world is changing in the name of progression, progressivism, you and I need to understand God's word never changes. God's standard never changes. What was right 2,000 years ago is still right today. The world may convince themselves it's okay. But don't let you convince yourself. And certainly don't give approval to our young people that it's a different day and it's a different time. And so things are different and we understand that. We don't understand it. Stand with me if you will.